Well, in the last weeks and months, I have uh, had the opportunity to preach on such uh, relaxing subjects, such as Romans 13, Satan, things like that. And while there's an exhilaration to that, there's a certain degree to which that's draining. There's a certain degree to which there is a, um, a power that has to be exerted to say this is what the Word of God says because there are dividing lines to be drawn. There are sides to be taken. Tonight, I don't have to do that, and it is a joy for me just to give the salve of the Word of God, the healing nature of Scripture, as we talk about giving thanks through the Psalms, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Some who are new to the Christian faith or maybe even in a time of trial or suffering, maybe just even kind of running out of words, will sometimes say, I don't know what to say to God. I really don't know what to say. I know I'm supposed to pray. I know I'm supposed to say certain things, but in this particular moment, I just don't have words. And that's one of the glorious purposes of the book of Psalms, the book of songs. The Psalms puts words in our mouth to speak back to God. Psalms unlocks our own heart. It unlocks our ability to express to God the joys and the laments of our lives. And it really does give us words to say. Now, in terms of feeling restricted in our ability to communicate with God, one variable that can hamper our communication, can impede the richness and delight of times in prayer with the Lord is simply a lack of thought and falling into repeated prayer habits when it comes to Thankfulness when it comes to gratitude. And so when it comes to our thankfulness, the Psalms also unlock those things for which we're to thank God. It pries us out of the habits of prayer that become mindless. Thank you for this food. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my dog. Thank you for the church and all the good things you give. Amen. Same thing you said yesterday and the day before. And those are good things to thank God for. But I don't know about you, but I think most people, when they're being thanked, appreciate a little detail. And let me give you an example. Men, if you're married, let me give you a test, and I'll make it easy. You only have two options. Which phrase do you believe would mean the most to your wife? Option one, thank you for your love, for listening to me, for understanding my maleness, for taking care of me with glorious meals, for helping me walk with the Lord by your encouragement, for dressing nicely for me, for smiling when I come home, for nurturing and teaching our children, for being wise and frugal with our resources, for planning the joys and delights of our home, for not saying the things I do deserve to hear, and for saying the things I do not deserve to hear. That's option one. Option two, thanks, babe. (laughs) Choose carefully. And I'm going to give you a hint. Choose option one. Because God wants to hear from you in the same way. He doesn't need to hear from you, but he would like to hear from you. Why is that? Because the prayers of the saints bring delight and joy to God. Did you know that? Your prayers bring delight to God. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. I'm not a big fan of that translation. Acceptable is the most benign translation possible, but it's a Hebrew word which means delight and pleasure. So we could say the prayer of the upright brings pleasure to God, brings 
delight to God. Your prayers are a delight, they're a pleasure to God in the same way that the little jabbering of a toddler brings delight to everyone. So what can you do to get out of the rut of just thanking God for the same things over and over again? Of just saying, "Uh uh-oh, it's Thanksgiving week, I guess i got to pray an extra prayer of Thanksgiving. What do you do do to get out of that rut? Well, what I'd like to give you tonight is four surprising expressions of gratitude in the Psalms. Four surprising expressions of gratitude. And I'll have you turn to Psalm 9 to begin with. Psalm 9 is closely linked to Psalm 10. They're very similar in vocabulary, in themes. The Septuagint, which is the Latin, the uh, Greek translation, rather, of the Old Testament, and the Latin translation of the Old Testament, both of them treat Psalm 9 and 10 as one psalm. Psalm 10 doesn't have a superscription, which is that introductory, those introductory words at the beginning. And so it seems very, very connected, but for our purposes tonight, we're just going to consider some parts of Psalm 9. And here's our first surprising expression of gratitude. Thank you for courage. Thank you for courage. Because throughout this psalm, thanking God is the cure for fear. David is the author of this psalm, and he's determined to have courage that's made available by God. And he thanks God in two primary ways in this psalm to have courage. The first way he thanks God is he is telling God's deeds back to him. He's telling God's deeds back to him. Verse 1, to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. David is giving thanks to God with his whole heart. This can mean the totality of himself. It can mean all of who he is with total devotion. Now, the Hebrew word for heart here is very broad. It's very varied. It can mean a number of different things depending on this context. So we have to use context to understand the nuance here. In this particular case, the Hebrew poetic parallelism is what helps us. This is an example of synonymous parallelism. In other words, the second phrase says the same thing as the first one in different words, helping clarify the first phrase. And so they, they act as, as commentary for one another. So praising God with the whole heart is understood as what? I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Praising God with the whole heart here then speaks of David using his reason, using his mind, using his memory, using all that he knows about God, all that he can recall that God has done. And he thanks God for all of his wonderful deeds. That's how he begins to have courage. He tells God's deeds back to him. Now, by the way, we don't want to jump to a self-focused, okay, I will praise God for everything he's done for me. That's okay, but that's not what David is restricting himself to the deeds of God he's recounting back to God are much bigger than just himself. Now, he starts with God's deeds concerning himself. Verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. And so he does thank God for the things that God has done in his life. But then he gets much more global. Verse 5, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. What is he doing? He's thanking God for the judgment of the nations. He continues getting even bigger. Verse 7. 
But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Now he's thanking God for ruling the world on an established throne. Verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. He's thanking God for his faithfulness to generations of worshipers who have placed their faith in God. Now, as you notice, by the way, in these verses we've read, David is thanking God for his past deeds he's accomplished, and he's also thanking him for deeds yet to be in the future. The Lord has not yet judged all the nations, and he certainly has not yet established his throne on the earth. So how do you thank God for what he's done in the past and also what he is yet to do in the future using the words of God? Well, very simply, there's two genres of biblical literature in our scripture here which help you. They give you words for your thanks. There's the genre of narrative. That's history. Those are the stories in our Bible of the things God has done. And then there's the genre of prophecy, the things that God will do, how he will yet accomplish mighty deeds. And listen, this is so much more than just God, thanks for how you've been kind to me. Thanks for great things you've done. Amen. We want to know our Bibles better than that. This is God, thank you for the creation of the world. God, thank you for the promise of a Savior given all the way back in Genesis Thank you for your election of Abraham. Thank you for the miraculous birth of Isaac. Thank you for the birth of Jacob, that you would use him to form your mighty nation of Israel. Thank you for your faithfulness to Israel, despite her constant wavering and failures, because that demonstrates how you treat me, despite my constant wavering and failures. And then in the future, God, thank you for your coming redemption. Thank you that Christ will return. Thank you for reigning in righteousness and justice. That Christ will be on the earth in fullness of joy. That cities, as we read here in this psalm, cities with wicked rulers will someday be demolished. That truth and righteousness will win the day as you take your throne. In verse 6 here, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. I'd be nervous if I lived in Portland reading that. Because God will judge. And we thank him for these things. Or we could paraphrase the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Thank you that your kingdom is coming. And that your will shall be done on earth just as it is done in heaven. So the first way that David thanks God and receives courage is telling God's deeds back to him. The second way is similar, but in some ways even more intense. The second way David thanks God and receives courage is singing God's deeds back to him. He sings God's deeds back to him. Look back with me in verse 2. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now what is praise? The idea of praise is closely linked to the works of God, the things that he does. And so David uses this expression of song to do two things here. He says, First, it is to be glad. It's just what it means. It means to be merry. It means to be rejoicing. It means to be happy. David's singing lightens his heavy heart. It turns his affections from worry to gladness. And he sings his way to joy. He sings his way to gratitude. He sings his way to being thankful. And the second expression that his song 
gives him is to exult in God. I will be glad and exult in you. This is similar to being glad, but there's one more element added, and that's the element of triumph. It's the element of boasting. It's the element of David boasting in God, bragging that he serves the only true and living God. And we don't talk about that very much, but there is a sense in which you can lie in your bed at night and you can think for a moment, every single thing in my life is going to work out exactly right, either now or in the life to come, because I'm on the winning side. And God is going to win everything. And that's kind of cool. We see later in the psalm, once again, David singing the deeds of God, verse 11. And we get a little surprise in this verse. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Here's the surprise. This is very interesting. Singing the deeds of God becomes a means of evangelism, of telling others about God. Now, does this mean we need to go to the street corner and start singing hymns? That's not actually a bad idea. But it does mean that our singing, when we do so in the presence of those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, and you don't know who that is, there there may be someone here tonight like that, but that's one of our means of evangelism. It's one of our means of boasting in God and His great work of salvation from sin. I think how a church sings tells a story. How a church sings tells you what they're learning, what they're knowing. A a church which sings with a ho-hum attitude gives witness to a ho-hum God. And a church that sings with vigor, with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, is a church that boasts in a God who saves. And this is what David is doing. He received courage from God by telling God his deeds and by singing to God his deeds. How great is that? Turn with me to Psalm 30, just a few pages away. This is another Psalm of David. And it says in the superscript at the beginning to be a song of the dedication of the temple. Now, temple here is the same word in Hebrew for house. So it could be that this was used at the dedication of David's own palace. And some would feel that way because Psalm 29 seems more suited to a temple dedication. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That sounds like a temple psalm. I think that makes sense. In either case, though, Psalm 30 is primarily about praising God. But what makes us wonder about Psalm 30 as to whether it's a temple psalm or not is it has strong themes of death and weeping and mourning. doesn't matter one way or another, but I tend toward This being a song in which David prepared for the dedication of the temple. He wasn't allowed to build the temple, but nobody, uh, God never restricted him from helping prepare to build the temple and to dedicate it. The reason I tend toward this is this would be a later time in David's life. And in Psalm 30, we're going to see that he makes conclusions about his life. He speaks like an old man. He speaks like a man who's walked with the Lord for a long time. And that brings us to our second surprising expression of gratitude. It's not one we talk about very much, but how about this one? Thank you for happy endings. Thank you for happy endings. Let's start at the very end of Psalm 30. David's life certainly had its share of suffering. Everything from not being taken seriously by his father or his brothers when he was a young man 
everything to running for his life when King Saul threatened him, to losing the love of his life, Michael, when she was disgusted at his worship of God, to being betrayed by his beloved son Absalom. David's life was marked by suffering. But here's his conclusion, verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Generally speaking, over the course of David's life, he had been able to see a pattern, yes, of God allowing tremendous pain and suffering, but God also giving great blessing, great and tremendous delight in the aftermath of that pain. In other words, his life, although it was marked by suffering, is also marked by great and tremendous blessings, many, many happy endings. Later in his kingship, David allowed himself to be tempted by Bathsheba, the wife of one of his commanders, Uriah. And David went down a very, very dark road. David ended up making certain Uriah died in battle so that he could have Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, for himself. You remember the story in 2 Samuel, the prophet Nathan confronted David. David repented. Psalm 51 is the record of his repentance. The baby boy, which was born as a result of David's adultery with Bathsheba, the baby died at the hands of the Lord. 2 Samuel 2, 12, 15 says, The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. David had taken Bathsheba, a woman who did not belong to him, but he took her as his own. It was such a great and heinous sin that 2 Samuel 12 still refers to Bathsheba as Uriah's wife. And yet, after the repentance, after the grave and serious consequences of his sin, God was still kind, and he blessed David and Bathsheba with another son, Solomon, who would go on literally to be the wisest man who ever lived, according to God's promise in 1 Kings 3.12, to Solomon. In fact, when Solomon was born, 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25 says, The Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. So Jedidiah was God's nickname for Solomon. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. That's a happy ending. As a matter of fact, the hope of happy endings is a reason that David gives to sing to the Lord. Look with me at verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Here's the reason. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. David portrays the time of weeping as a time of darkness and nighttime, and the time of joy as the dawning of light. And he says the time of darkness, the time of difficulty is just a moment, but joy goes on and on. Now, the obvious question is, what about non-happy endings? And what about problems that seem as if they could not possibly have a happy ending? I have a challenge for you. It's a two-part challenge. Part one, in whatever your situation you're thinking of, whatever you can think of that is happening to you, where you may think this cannot possibly have a happy ending... I want you to imagine the happiest ending you can possibly think of. Now, I'm not promising that this is what God will do. He will certainly do His will, and it will be different from yours. But I want you to imagine this. 
Why is that? Because Scripture gives us a promise, and here's the second part of the challenge. To believe that God's conclusion to your pain will be better than anything you could dream up. In other words, do your best. Dream the ultimate ending and God will think of something better. It will have more incredible implications. There will be a wider variety of blessings. There will be multiple purposes and features and colors and delights. The wisdom of His happy ending will make your jaw drop. Now, that happy ending may happen partly in this life. Most likely, most or all of it will happen in the life to come. But... Your death is incidental to God in how he works out his will for your life because your life is going to go on and on and on. How do we know this is the case? The Apostle Paul gave a lofty prayer for the church of Ephesus. He said in Ephesians 3, and you're very familiar with this, beginning in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This is his prayer. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. This is quite a prayer, isn't it? May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is his prayer? His prayer is that the church at Ephesus would comprehend fully The love of God, that seems impossible. But do you remember what he says next? He makes a declaration. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul has just asked that the church be able to fully, fully comprehend the love of Christ And then he declares that God will do more than that. How is that possible? I don't know. We don't understand that. And this is when you say by faith, but my situation can't possibly have a happy ending. And and that can seem real. My loved one died without knowing Christ. How can that have a happy ending? My family's broken apart irreparably. How can that have a happy ending? The consequences of my sin, yes, my sin is forgiven, but the consequences will go on and on in my life. That's just the nature of those consequences. But by faith, you change your thinking because what's wrong with that thinking? That thinking says that I can know what the happy ending is going to be. But Paul said exactly the opposite. You don't know because God is the one writing the script of your life and you probably wouldn't believe it if you read it. No, that that can't happen. That's a very simple question. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God or not? Do you believe that the God who can make the heavens and the earth and make Jupiter and and Venus and Saturn and earth and, and all the stars and can make you and made your children and made your grandchildren, do you believe that he can provide an ending that will make you go, oh, wow, that's amazing? Of course he can. We don't know what he's going to do. It's too much for us to comprehend Do you think that King David, as his baby boy lay sick and dying, thought, well, at least after the baby dies and my wife Bathsheba is inconsolable and I'm wallowing in the humiliation of my own sin, at least God will use this event to bring Bathsheba to myself so that she can give birth to the boy who will be the wisest man who ever lived and will, by the way, write 5% of the Bible. I don't think he thought that. Why not? Because God will do above what we can ask or think. 
I imagine when David saw that big picture, like, wow. God doesn't obligate us, obligate himself to tell us the how or the when. Certainly doesn't obligate, us to tell, obligate himself to tell us the why. And so the essence of living by faith is to thank God for happy endings, even when you can't see them and even when they seem impossible. And if you can actually believe that, that's a pretty neat way to live, isn't it? Turn with me to Psalm 92. Psalm 92 is a psalm for the Sabbath day. After the exile, each day of the week was assigned a psalm for temple worship. Sunday was Psalm 24. Interestingly, on what would become the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection of Christ, Psalm 24 says, who is this king of glory? Monday was Psalm 48 and so on. Each day was assigned a psalm. Psalm 92 was for Saturday. It was for the Sabbath. Now, I think that sometimes we're a little bit hamstrung when we hear the word Sabbath because we've heard for so long about the New Testament era leaders of Israel, how they had grown legalistic and formal and external about the Sabbath because they weren't saved. They didn't have true living faith. And so very often Christians can have a negative view of the Jews' observance of Sabbath in the Old Testament. But we're not to have that view. The Sabbath is beautiful. The Sabbath is amazing. The Sabbath is a delight. The Sabbath was the sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was a day of worship. Numbers 28, beginning in verse 9, says, On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. It's a day of worship. It's a day of sacrifice. Deuteronomy 5, 15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What was the command for? It was partly to say, rest, because I gave you rest. And we've said this recently, after Christ returns, he will reinstitute Sabbath. Ezekiel 46.3, this is in the future. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbath. So it's coming back. And in Psalm 92, the psalm of the day of worship, we find a third surprising expression of gratitude. Thank you for judging the wicked. Thank you for judging the wicked. Now, we'll get to that part in a moment. It's kind of surprising, but first I want to make a few comments on some important features of this psalm. Verse 1, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. This is a general declaration that the day of worship is good. It's good to sing on that day. And what part of the day does the psalmist worship? Verse 2, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Aha, God commands an evening service. If you want to stretch it a little bit to that application. In any case, notice that it's a day of worship. It's not a, it's not a portion of a day. It is a day of worship. Verses 3 and 4. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the, music, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. You notice that the other six days of the week, the worshiper is focused on his own work. 
toiling to support his family financially, women toiling to keep the home fires burning, children toiling to help the family. But on the Sabbath, the worshiper is made, God, made glad by God's work, by what God has done. What work of God? Well, first and foremost, the Sabbath represents creation. The work of creation from which God rested on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, that's the basis, that's the foundation, that's the beginning of Sabbath. But the second work is a reminder that God instituted Sabbath after enslavement, giving Israel redemption and rest from their toil. As slaves, every seven days, they stopped working and were reminded we are no longer slaves because of God's redemption. And third, bigger picture signifies the fact that we rest spiritually because God worked on our behalf. There's a phenomenal passage in Hebrews 4. You don't have to turn there, but verses 9 and 10 tell us, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What does it mean that we have rested from our works, that we have stopped striving to please God by means of our own righteousness? And now we rest. Why? Because Christ has pleased God with his righteousness. And so we parallel the Sabbath rest of God with our own rest. But in the context of Psalm 92, what's the specific work for which the worshiper is giving thanks to God? What is it that God has done? Verse 5. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Now we see what he's thanking God for. The worshiper has been given rest from his enemies. This is kind of hard for us to understand, but remember that in Israel, if you could live a normal life of temple worship, of enjoying your family and community and your livestock and your farm, this was only possible because God was providing peace with every other nation around you. Because for centuries, Israel, if you ever look at the map of Israel, it's basically a highway from one giant empire to another. They're the bridge from uh, Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia. And they were constantly the, the go-between. And Israel often got caught in the crossfire, so to, so to speak, and swept up in the waves of larger powers fighting one another, just becoming the doormat of these powers going back and forth. But the worshiper here has an even bigger picture in mind than just having current rest from his enemies. Not only is he celebrating a time of peace from enemy influence, he declares that the enemies of God are doomed to destruction forever. Now, in our New Testament Christian thought, this isn't something we're taught to think about a lot. To say, on Thanksgiving Day, hold up your turkey leg and say, thank you, God, that your enemies are doomed. And we don't really do that. But that's what the psalmist is doing here. The enemies of God are doomed to destruction forever. We talked about that this morning and how much joy that's going to bring when there's a world devoid of the influence of Satan and all of his people. Now, where do the wicked people in the world exist? They exist in two places, outside the church and inside the church. I think we're pretty comprehensive there. Inside the church, we're given the mandate to purify the church through a call to repentance 
and even to the point of disfellowshipping the unrepentance, the potentially false believer. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us of this, that we are to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, who publicly says, I am a Christian. If he's guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, and so forth, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And so there is a duty to purify, to purge the church, to make her a purified bride. God says he'll take care of those on the outside. We're to take care of those on the inside. We had an election recently. And we bristle at the number of just overtly wicked men and women either being given great power or in most cases keeping great power. And we're tempted to count down until the next presidential election. It's only 1,443 days away, but who's counting? We're tempted to keep looking for relief. We're tempted to keep looking for justice now. But Psalm 92 looks much, much further than that. The psalmist looks to eternity at a time when every wicked enemy of God will receive the just compensation for his or her wickedness. You know, it's interesting, very often in the Bible... God's people express a a longing for justice, a longing for God's enemies to be repaid. Now, first of all, if those prayers were answered immediately, you wouldn't be here because for many of his enemies, what God has done is he's conquered them by turning them into worshipers of Christ. That's how he conquers many of his enemies. But for those who would remain God's enemies and make life miserable in the world, here's a Here's a longing that we hear and we relate to and we sympathize with for immediate relief, immediate justice. For example, Psalm 74, 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And so we have that sense of impatience. God, can't we just have a have a a sweeping of the nation of all wickedness just once, just for a year? Let's just give us a break here for a year. But we're to take the same hope that God gave Israel in Isaiah 35 when it seemed that Israel would never be set free of the bondage from other nations and bondage from her own sin when it seemed that God was never going to establish His kingdom on earth. And so God tells Isaiah to encourage the anxious and those desperate for justice. He says in Isaiah 35, 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That's an eternal perspective that's okay with waiting patiently. With waiting not a year, not four years, not ten years, but waiting for your lifetime and even beyond that. Having an eternal perspective helps waiting now be okay. It helps disappointment now be okay. I don't have much of what some call a bucket list, the list of things you want to do before you die. Mine is pretty small. But one thing on my, I guess you could call it a bucket list, something I'd like to do is I'd like to go to the Ark Encounter in the Creation Museum and just take three days walking through it slowly, reading every word, probably driving my family crazy, reading every single word. But if I don't get to do that, that's okay Because all I have to do is wait for the day when I can meet Noah and I can meet Shem and Ham and Japheth when I can hear firsthand all about the great flood. How certain were you that the ark would actually float? 
Was your wife crossing her fingers behind her back as the waters came? What tools did you use to build the ark? Who did you preach to? Second Peter 2 says you were a preacher of righteousness. How did that go? Which animal did the mosquito hitch a ride on? And why didn't you kill it when you had a chance? All the questions you want to ask. And seriously, what did you do with all the animal waste? I mean, really, that must have been a bad year. All I have to do if I want to think about creation. All I have to do is meet the angels of God who shouted for joy at the creation of the world according to Job 38.7 and ask them, what was it like when God created light? How did he make Jupiter? When God created the animals in one day, what was the biggest one? What was the smallest one? What was it like to see God create a being in his own image? The first man. All I'd have to do is wait to meet Adam and ask him, what was that moment like when you first opened your eyes and took your first breath? What were you created knowing? Did you know that carrots are good and turnips taste awful? Or maybe before sin, did turnips taste good? What was it like being 900 years old? How did you keep the fires of your marriage going for nine centuries? All these questions we want to ask. Listen, that's eternal perspective. And and we laugh and we chuckle. You will get to ask those people questions. It's eternal perspective which allows you to read concerning the wicked. Revelation 20, verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire and to believe it as if it's happening today. As if God is making all things right at this moment. That's faith. Let's do one more. Turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. This is the sixth and the last psalm of what is sometimes called the Hallel or the Egyptian Hallel, praise the Lord. It's sung before and after the Passover meal. It was celebrating and remembering God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Psalm 118 is quoted or cited in the New Testament over a dozen times, and it is at its core a psalm of thanksgiving. In fact, it begins with a call to give thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Then the psalm provides a reason to give thanks. In verses 5 through 18, basically the reason is found in verse 6. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verses 5 through 18 kind of stay with that theme. And then using the imagery of the temple, the psalmist makes a request to be able to give thanks to the Lord, to have his thanksgiving received and accepted by God. And what is it that makes your thankfulness acceptable to God? What is it that makes God want to listen to your gratitude? Well, that's our fourth surprising expression of gratitude. Thank you for justification in Christ. Thank you for justification in Christ. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Christ came in the New Testament. This is Psalms in the Old Testament long before Christ. Why are you mentioning him? Well, let's see. Verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
Here we have the metaphor of a gate, the gate to the temple or the gate perhaps to the city of God. And it's used to describe entering into God's fellowship. And the psalmist is asking, please let me in the gate so that I can worship, so I can give you thanks. And what is this gateway called? That which is necessary to enter into fellowship with God, to enter into thanksgiving with God. It's called the gates of righteousness, the gates of purity, the gates of holiness, the gates of perfection. So why would God open the gates of righteousness to you? He won't. He absolutely won't. He only opens the gates of righteousness to the one who is righteous. And that is the good news of the gospel. In Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And when that righteousness has been imputed to you, that you have been now credited with the righteousness of Christ, that you may enter those gates of righteousness. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1, gives us these glorious promises. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also we have obtained access. What is that? It's a word that means opening. The gates are open. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Access to the gates of righteousness into the temple of the very presence of God. This temple is built with spiritual stones as it were. And upon what foundational stone is the temple of the very presence of God built? You know it. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. The builders, the leaders of Israel would reject Jesus. Peter was arrested and he was brought before the Jewish council and the same council which crucified Jesus. He proclaimed to them in Acts 4.11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus now has become the cornerstone of the entrance into the presence of God by supplying His righteousness and His death for our sin to justify us, to render us worthy to enter into the courts of God. And to say, Psalm 118, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You know, most of us, probably all of us, can't even get an invitation to the White House. But the gates of righteousness to the very throne room of God are thrown open for you. You can enter any time through prayer and you'll enter in reality at the end of your life. Now it's often tempting to be more focused on what's wrong than what's right. To be in anguish over what today holds. Lord, this is the day of my pain. Say, Lord, this is the day of my disappointment. To say, Lord, this is the day of my worry and my anxiety. To say, Lord, this is the day of my weakness and my despair. But thanking God for justification in Christ that you might enter into the gates of righteousness through the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ enables you instead to say, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the same psalm, incidentally, that the Lord Jesus Christ had sung right after the final Passover 
when he was about to be arrested, tortured, beaten, and go to the cross, he sang, this is the day that the Lord has made. What day? The day where salvation is bought and where the unrighteous may enter into the gates of righteousness. So if you're having trouble getting started being thankful, can I encourage you to give thanks through the Psalms and a lifetime won't be enough time to speak back to God all that he has done, to tell his deeds to him, to sing his deeds to him, because he's given you a way to express that to him. I hope that you'll do that this season. Let's pray together. Our Father, how kind you are to not expect us to know words, to not expect us to come up with reasoned and holy and righteous words of expression to you. We are foolish. We are darkened in our understanding in so many ways. And so you have graciously given us words to speak. And we speak those words this night, Lord. We say to you, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We say to you, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. We thank you and we give you praise in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.